0: You are listening to Rites of Passage, a reconciliation podcast brought to you by Chapter One and the Kitchener Public Library.
1: Thank you for joining me. I am Kelly Fran Davis and a Haudenosaunee consultant, researcher, and educator. My co-host and friend, Dr. Steven Spencer, is a settler, ally, and educator. We are colleagues at Wilfrid Laurier University and have engaged in reconciliation work for a number of years. During this Rites of Passage, a reconciliation podcast episode, I open with a traditional prayer in my and Mohawk languages, and reiterate in English. We talk about Haudenosaunee practices, the democracy model of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, and what a matrilineal society means. We discuss what reconciliation is, what a Truth and Reconciliation Commission is. We talk about the notion that reconciliation is dead. We also share some of the barriers with reconciliation work. We talk about the divisions and systems created through colonization, and what we can do within our capacities to address the responsibility to our future generations. We discuss Haudenosaunee wampum belts and Canadian number treaties, as well as land acknowledgements. In my language, I'm going to say, um, So in Kyuga, the first part of that prayer was given thanks to our creator, um, our higher power that we have things to be thankful for. In the second part of that prayer was the Mohawk language. And um, I just acknowledge people. And give thanks for people because that's our first family um, amongst the four families of the world, the animal kingdom, the plant life, the mineral life, and us human beings. So I just acknowledge people in our lives, all people in our lives, people that you know just constantly bring us joy and greatness into our lives. And then those people that, you know, bring challenges or lessons to be learned. So I just acknowledge all people. And give thanks that we have each other. And so, with that said, I want to welcome my co-host here, uh, Dr. Stephen Svensson.
0: Right. Thanks, Kelly. It's great to be here. Good to see you. It's uh, good to. Um, I don't know. Do it's good to do this work. I think I'm, I'm excited about doing this work. Um, it's one of the few th- <laughs> few things that sounds terrible, but it's one of the things that actually brings me joy in the midst of this pandemic. Is that we can come together and we've worked together for. You know, a number of years now, and and to share, um, I guess, our insights. You know, uh, about about what's going on. So, yeah, really
1: happy to be here. Yeah. So, um, so I think some of the uh, some of the main points of reconciliation work is for me as a Haudenosaunee person. What that means is I can share, you know, traditional knowledge. You know, knowledge that I've gained from my um, aunties, my mom, you know, my grandma, who I didn't know very long, either one of my grandmothers, but I mean, like share that traditional knowledge that's been passed down through generations. That's our oral tradition, right? And um, yeah, so sharing some of that knowledge, some of our practices, you know, our traditional practices, like the Thanksgiving address and you know, that good mind and talking about being thankful, kind of what I did in the opening a bit. Um, I don't do the entire prayer or speech in um, because we're taught that's a male's responsibility. So we won't get into all of that, but like for Haudenosaunee people, we are a matrilineal society, right? And it's great because... Um, it doesn't mean, it's a, it's not a, a way of who's in charge because that's not how our communities traditionally function, right? We're a democracy, a true democracy. Um, we don't have a hierarchy structure. There's no one decision maker. There's no one person that guides things or or decides things or any of that. It's all about teamwork and effort and capacity and and, you know, everybody um, putting their best foot forward and doing what they can to the best of their ability, whether it's, you know, um, tending to gardens or, or to hunting or to building shelters or whatever that looks like, whatever, you know, people's natural abilities are. That's what's honed in on. That's what's, you know... Um, that's your best way to contribute to the community, right? Is by doing your best in whatever your capacity is. So I just wanted to talk a bit about that because, you know, um, when I say to people, oh, we're a matrilineal society, people say, well, um, oh, so the women are in charge. No, 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 no. Don't get it twisted now. <laughs> That's a colonial mentality, right? It means that women have a voice. It means that we, we're we inclusive, right? So all of this work that's happening, you know, reconciliation, equity, inclusion, diversity, all that stuff, eh, it, it's old news to us, you know? It's old news to what I've been growing up with. So this is a big part of the reconciliation work that we do, that I do, is I share what I can. What I know about who I am as a Haudenosaunee person, because it is, I don't want to say completely different, but it's different than, you know, what mainstream and the greater population is used to, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So, Stephen, like, what is reconciliation?
0: Yeah no this is this is a great question you know and you raise you raise the the idea about putting our best foot forward and and we've had i guess uh on December 15th we had the 5 year anniversary of the True Con- truth and reconciliation final report with their 94 calls to action um raised in that in that discussion on uh, APTN which Featured the three commissioners who'd spent six years and hosted seven national events, trying to engage the broader Canadian population. Uh, Murray Sinclair, Wilton Littlechild, and Marie Wilson, and they talked about you know how far um, we had come. I guess as 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 uh, as a Canadian um, as a Canadian initiative, but but what more needed to be done, and and so I think you know. This is a reconciliation podcast. I think that's kind of the notion, part of the idea behind it, right? So we're sharing knowledge. Um, and I really appreciate the knowledge that, that you bring because that's different from my settler knowledge. And essentially I'm ignorant to, to a lot of these things. And, um, so I appreciate, uh, all those, all those different insights. And from, from my perspective, I guess what I'm really interested in is how we're doing. You know, are we actually fulfilling our obligations under the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's final report. How are we doing on those 94 calls to action? And one of the things that I've heard in, in the circles that I travel in is the idea that reconciliation is dead. We, we quite often hear that. And so um, I, I guess I wanted to, to think about that, pause about that, and and uh, and reflect on it, you know, for a moment. You know, is reconciliation dead and why um why are some people saying this maybe i'll i'll throw it back
1: to you with that question friend that's a really challenging question right it's a really hard question it's it's really hard to answer because you know i don't represent indigenous people i don't even represent Haudenosaunee people i represent just me right just me as myself and so i'm going to answer that um and talk about that, you know, in the most uh, kindest way that I can, because um, I'll give my take on what reconciliation, if that's dead or not, kind of thing. But I also want to acknowledge, you know, and, and um, be compassionate, I guess, to why people are saying that, right. So with, um, first, I want to say with, with, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada. I know Dr. Svensson, Stephen here, has talked about how it was a six-year research uh, study. I just wanted to give a little um, a little point here. Is a, tr- a Truth and Reconciliation Commissions, for whoever doesn't know, are international practices. And typically, they're a five-year study that's done when a country acknowledges they've done something really horrible And they want to see what are the impacts and effects of what they've done and how to take steps forward to try to repair some of that damage and, and whatnot. Um, And for Canada, it's the Indian residential schools. Right. And so, like I said, typically it's up to a five-year research study. So what um, Murray Sinclair had done, the, Honorable Murray Sinclair had done when he became the chair of Canada's Truth and Reconciliation Commission, is he applied to the Supreme Court of Canada to get a year extension on their Truth and Reconciliation Commission because there was a lot of documentation missing. So documentation was missing for various reasons. You know, residential schools had been burnt down by some of the students. Um, Some of the documentation was destroyed because, you know, there is things happening in these schools that shouldn't have been happening, for example, like um, experiments on the children and their health and different things, right? So, yeah, so there is a lot of documentation missing that... um, the commissioners could not access. So they applied for this extension. They were granted the extension. That's why they had a six-year study. And so when they did that, they took that year, that extra year to actually um, interview residential school survivors and sometimes their descendants. And so I just wanted to throw that in there at this point, because it's like, you know, some people may not know, what is the truth of Reconciliation Commission? So I wanted just people to know that point. So now back to your question about reconciliation is dead, uh, Stephen. It's like I said, it's very challenging to answer that, to talk about, you know, um, how people feel about that. For me personally, it's for i mean just the work around truth and reconciliation just to you know have that truth and reconciliation commission done in canada is is it was mind blowing to me as a young person because you know when i was uh in my 20s is when they started to talk about that. And it was, you know, um, Phil Fontaine, who was the regional chief at the time. He was the one that started to talk about his experience in, in Indian Residential School and publicly. And then he started to, that's, that's where that whole conversation started to go to have a commission done. So um, I was a young person then. And... You know, I didn't know nothing about residential schools, even as a as a descendant of survivors, right? I had no idea. Um, and then I went to post-secondary and then I started to learn more and then things were coming out more and the commission was going on and I was invited to different events and whatnot. I actually did a talk for Truth and Reconciliation before the final report was done. I did a workshop at Western University and uh, just talking about treaties and stuff like that. But when people say reconciliation dead, for me, I don't, I don't see it that way. Because, you know, a lot, I've seen a lot in my lifetime, for example, um, when I went to school at four years old, um, to kindergarten, I was, I had wished at that time as a little kid, that the teachers had known more about our ways because I was the type of child that was fed on demand kind of, you know, it's the saying, but it was, there was nothing really rigid about how our days went. And then when we went to school, everything was like bells and line up and now it's time to eat. And now it's time to like, it was so rigid and it was, it was really culture shock to me. So at that age, I wished boy, I wish these teachers knew more about us, about Haudenosaunee people, or us Indian people we were called at the time, right? So, um, so, anyways, forty years later, I got invited to talk to the Faculty of Ed at Wilfrid Laurier University and to talk about what it would look like if I was actually to teach in their teacher education candidate program and talk about indigenous context and education. And I was like, whoa. And then when they asked me, they gave me the contract, I was so emotional because that to me was full circle, right? That was my dream when I was four years old, that the teachers would know more about us as people, as indigenous people, Indian people, Haudenosaunee people. 40 years later, my dream came true. You know, so now four years later, I've been teaching teacher candidates about indigenous folks, you know, so to me, reconciliation is not dead because if it wasn't for that TRC, my dream would not have come true to be able to teach teachers about us, right? So I always I always think of that when people ask me what I think about reconciliation being dead, right? But, you know, so from um, understanding as well, Um, indigenous folks, I guess, this is kind of a general statement, but most of the indigenous folks I know, we like to keep it pretty simple, right? (laughs) It's pretty simple, like, okay, so this is what we need to do. If we're having a problem with equity and diversity, all that, okay, let's talk humanity, you know, like that democracy I talked about. Why don't we talk about what is your contribution? What's your best foot? What do you want to put forward? How do you want to contribute to whatever we're working on? What can you do to contribute to reconciliation? What can you do? What's your capacity? Right. And if that's not happening and people are not doing that, and it's still, you know, those same tactics, right? Those colonization, colonial tactics and strategies of okay, well, we want to reconcile, but it has to be on our terms. That's not, it's not reconciliation, right? So I can see because things are not moving, you know, as quickly as they could be, to be quite honest. And we can, we know why some of those things are not moving as quickly as they could be, right? It's because of, you know, fear of losing privilege or losing power or authority or whatever it is, you know, there's, there's strategies and tactics and stop and move that work forward. Is that kind of helpful?
0: <laughs> yeah, that was, there was some really important words to say there for me to hear. And I think for other people to hear as, as well. And I mean, and when I listened to the interview uh, on APTN with, Marie Sinclair, Wilton Littlechild, and Marie Wilson—something really kind of struck home with regards to what Wilton Littlechild had to say about this idea that reconciliation was dead. He said, "He says, well, I hope not because I've wasted a bunch of years of my life, you know." And so for me, I, I thought, you know, these, these people in good faith took this on. They they put their time and their energy into it. And I think for for uh, settlers and also um, Indigenous folks, you know, different Indigenous peoples, there's. Um, an obligation, I, I feel, to carry this work forward and to make sure that we we put our best for, foot forward in terms of um, making reconciliation uh, reality. Now, as you're saying, there's there's barriers put in place, there's institutions put in place, um, there's systemic systemic barriers, and there's I, obviously there's folks that don't want to relinquish their power, you know, and they, as you say, that's sort of one of the one of the biggest barriers there. And then I had, I'd been thinking about this and I said, well, we can do it. You know, I think broadly, you know, people can do it. We can do it in our everyday practices, um, you know, for, for folks that sort of know each other within this community where we have settlers and and indigenous peoples who know each other and work together, we can model and do some of that work. And, and that's good. Um, and I think that needs to happen, but always coming back to the idea that we can't leave it there that, at a collective level, at the level of provincial governments, uh, municipal governments, and especially the federal governments, we have to push these governments to make this happen. And I would say that particularly at the federal and the provincial levels, they've been dragging their feet, you know, on this. And and really they need to, uh, I, I mean, I'm going to lose my polite language here, but they need, they need to get their, their rears in gear so to speak. And I think, uh, and, and certainly those three commissioners agreed with that notion that these things need to be, need to, needs to be more pressure put on our levels of government. I think at the municipal level where I think often some of the best stuff happens because it's people on the ground, we're seeing some great moves, you know. Um, both City of Kitchener and City of Waterloo recently uh, have set up diversity and equity positions Within And I think believe that in each in each of those situations, there is a position that's set aside for an Indigenous person to help work on reconciliation initiatives. And, and that's, I think, an important step, that we have Indigenous people that are in positions where they can actually influence the discourse, where they can actually influence the structure. And I think we're seeing that a little bit at the municipal level. I mean, it's just sort of a, a crack, and the, the door is opening a crack in that way. But all sorts of institutions need that to happen. So that's that's my two cents on that.
1: Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I know I said I was talking about how um, with reconciliation work, you know, some of the barriers are that people don't want to give up their power or their positions or their authority or whatever, but I I wanted to mention too is that, you know, with this, with the historical atrocities that have happened to indigenous folks, there's also been things that have happened, um, you know, with non-indigenous folks um, very strategically to um, create those divisions. Right. Amongst people, amongst indigenous folks and non-indigenous folks, Um, it's been strategic. So I want to say that, you know, all of this past historical things that have happened and that we're learning more about now with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission is, you know, it's not our fault that these systems are running the way they are. They've been this way for generations. They're very strategic in in designing and structuring them. Like I talked about the hierarchy structure, you know, um, but like Steven had mentioned is that, you know, we all have some capacity. We can all just, you know, have conversations about the problems here, you know, or what we can do to help. So I just want to acknowledge that for people. And, and, you know, I have these conversations with indigenous and non-indigenous people saying, you know, like we have to, we have to remember that this, these things that have happened are not really our fault. But if we maintain the divisions, if we maintain the oppressive and systemic racism that happens, then yes, it is our fault. Then our next generation can say, why didn't you do better? Right. After knowing the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, after knowing all this stuff, now we have a responsibility. And I include myself in that because I also have to be mindful that, you know, generations of, you know, um, power, generations of uh, colonial structures, generations of processes, those have become normalized for people, right? And so working with different people, I have to be mindful that it's the only way that they've known for a long time. And I have to be mindful that I have to uh, give people a chance to, you know, start to accept what is normal for me. Or what's normal for you know decision makers, people um, in my communities that are doing things more traditional, and you know it's funny because what always comes to my mind is fourteen ninety two Back Lane, right? Like I don't know if anybody's aware of that, but it's a housing development that's been stopped in Caledonia. Um, By Haudenosaunee land defenders, they've stopped the housing development because they said, that's it. You're not taking any more of our territory, right? This is our territory. And, you know, documentation show that, yeah, that is our territory. But I don't want to get into that political ball of wax too much. But anyways, um, yeah, I just wanted to say we all have to be mindful that the history has you know, done a lot of damage to humanity, right? So um, there was another point I wanted to just kind of elaborate a bit on, Stephen, which you mentioned about um, the municipalities and the groundwork coming like kind of grassroots kind of level, you know, and and the Honorable Murray Sinclair had talked about that, right? He talked about this work is going to come from the ground up, It's not gonna go from the top down, which, you know, is typical what happens, but like, um, yeah, it's gonna come from the ground upwards to say, we need to do better, we gotta change things and listening to Indigenous people and listening to people of color to say, you want equity, then we need to be a part of that. You want inclusion, we need to be a part of that. So yeah, good on um, City of Kitchener and City of Waterloo. For putting together those departments and making spaces for people of color and for Indigenous folks, right, to do this reconciliation work. Yeah. So.
0: Yeah, there's. I mean, we could just go on and on, hey. Eh? Um, but I think all this, all this stuff we're talking about today is important context, right? For for I think what we're what we're setting up to talk about um, in this episode <laughs> is the the idea around uh, land acknowledgement. And uh, treaties and, and wampum belts and that distinction between, I think you mentioned earlier between sort of wampum belt tweet treaties which are really um, relational treaties I think as you've talked about and uh, number based treaties which are often I think as you said about
1: the sale of land and um, yeah so let's uh, let's jump into that. Hoodie Nishoni wampum belts I'm going to talk about because there's because that's who started wampum belts is the Haudenosaunee people. Our wampum belts were um, created, a lot of wampum belts were created with uh, traditional nations across Turtle Island, across North America, you know, um, long before colonization, hundreds, thousands of years before colonization came. So before 1492, we had wampum belts that were made with nations as how do we, you know, live together in peace and harmony on this land? How do we, you know, foster healthy, respectful, loving relationships between our nations, right? So those are what our wampum belts were for, were to say, you know, this is what we agree. We're not going to harm each other. We're not going to, you know, fight over land. We're not going to do all these things. And they had to come because there was conflict, right? There was a lot of conflict happen amongst nations prior to colonization as well. Um, but I mean, that's where the that's where the wampum belts came in. For the Haudenosaunee, you'll see our wampum belts are made of purple and white. They're always purple and white, right? The traditional Haudenosaunee wampum belts are created from the quahog shells and the weak sea shells. And I say they're made of these shells. They're actually, the shells are made into beads. And then the beads are created into these agreements, these um, documented agreements of the Haudenosaunee wampum belts. When When these agreements were made amongst nations, it was decided that, you know, if we're going to make these agreements and we're going to document them in this way, we're going to make sure that they cannot be easily changed. So if they were going to try to change these wampum belts, were which were the documents, they would have to go to great lengths to change these. I wanted to talk a bit about the two row wampum because this is the belt, the first wampum belt that was created with settlers and it was actually created with the Dutch back in like around 1613 is the date that was given. Um, And this was created to say, how do we coexist? How do we coexist in this river of life um, respectfully, you know, and to have a healthy relationship between settlers and Haudenosaunee. And so the two row, the purple rows represent, one represents the Haudenosaunee and their canoe. And all that makes them unique is Haudenosaunee people, right? Their songs, their dances, um, you know, our ceremonies, our foods, everything, our clothing, everything in that canoe. And the other purple row represents the Dutch Duchess Shep and everything that makes them unique is Dutch people, right? Their songs, dances, ceremonial practices, our foods, our clothing, everything that makes them unique. And the idea of this wampum belt was that we will live in peace and harmony and friendship and love, and we will travel this river of life. And we will be respectful and mindful that we have differences. You know, we have different ways of doing things and that's okay. As long as we don't try to steer each other's vessel, as long as we don't try to dominate each other's vessel, that we can, we can live in peace and harmony, right? So that is a nation to nation agreement that was made. With the first settlers here, and I mean, there's still a lot of Dutch people here. There's still, you know, all a lot of other settler people here, and so for the Haudenosaunee people, this wampum belt and this nation-to-nation relationship is still valid. You know, this agreement is still valid for the Haudenosaunee people, and as we know and as we can see, that wampum belt has not been honored by our. Our settler relatives. So yeah, I just wanted to talk a bit about that two row wampum belt. And um, it's kind of the basis of, or I hope that it's kind of the basis of reconciliation work. And that's the kind of, you know, that's the kind of work that Stephen and I try to do. Is to say, okay, your ways are different or your things, different things are different, but that's okay. We can put that all aside and we can just be humans and and work together and hopefully help change the way things are going for our future generations. Um, So then I was going to talk a bit about this dish with one spoon wampum belt. And what it is, it represents, you know, our natural environment and all of the resources that are there for all of us, for all human beings, for other beings on this earth to utilize and to grow and thrive from um, the benefits of, of utilizing those natural resources, right? So this, this wampum belt was created to say, we have to be mindful that there's other beings that will utilize that those resources as well or that space as well. And that we do not go and just take everything. You know, we only take what we need so that other beings can also uh, benefit from those. And also that we be mindful of our future generations that they also have a thriving and healthy natural environment to grow from. Because that's our responsibility, right? We have to ensure that. You know we don't wipe out all the trees or make all the water dirty before we leave this earth like we have to be mindful of those things these wampum belts like Stephen had mentioned is that they're relational based how do we live together in this space
0: yeah no and i i think for me it was a when i first encountered the two-row wampum and, and the dish one with one spoon it was a bit of a, a revelation i think and and for for many folks, I believe it's probably the the settler folks, uh, non Indigenous folks, is probably the same thing, and and we know that many uh, non or many Indigenous folks have now kind of adopted the two row wampum um, as the model or the metaphor for how uh, Indigenous and non Indigenous folks need to work together, you know, uh, and and respect each other, and I think there's been some. People have done some really, really good work that way. I also really like the idea of the dish with one spoon um, as a metaphor for how we not only uh, share the resources as we have currently, but we don't despoil them. And we remember that there are future generations that are coming along that also need these resources and that we need to be good caretakers of this. So one of the ways that I think that the Truth and Reconciliation Commission has had an impact has been... Um, The idea that we need to acknowledge these relationships and so we've had land acknowledgements that have popped up and have become a a part of almost any practice when we open up uh, um, a meeting it could be a municipal meeting when we open up a meeting um, at the university when even in our classes often we start with with uh a land acknowledgement or a territorial acknowledgement, and so they've become something that's I think needed, but they've become routinized, right? And and uh, so I think in in this area we, we talk about that um, if we're going to do a territorial acknowledgement, we talk about how this is this is the traditional territory of the uh, the Anishinaabe, um, the Atwanderon uh, or Neutral people, and the Haudenosaunee, and that this land that we we're on. Uh, the Haldeman Tract was land that was promised to the Haudenosaunee people and from six miles on either side of the Grand Mither River from its um, origins place to to the, to the where it flows into to the lake. Uh, and this was for them to have in perpetuity. and And we kind of leave it at that often. And so, okay, we've acknowledged what's going on here. We've acknowledged the traditional territory. And I think that's really an important step. But at the same time, uh, we've kind of lost something with this in the way that it has become routinized. And, and the question, okay, now what comes up? You know, I mean, Hayden King wrote, uh, and Hayden King does work at the Yellowhead Institute at, at Ryerson University. He wrote Ryerson's um, land acknowledgement, I guess, back in 2012. And, and Hayden King was very sort of critical of uh, his work doing that, and at the time he thought it was a good thing, and now he's really sort of second-guessed the fact that, that he wrote this and that it has become part of daily practice. And just to quote uh, Hayden King from a from a, a, I believe it was a Globe and Mail article, uh, or a CBC article, uh, and Hayden King says, quote, for me personally, I think I started to see how the territorial acknowledgement could become very superficial and also how it sort of fetishizes these actual tangible, concrete treaties. They're not metaphors. They're real institutions. And for us to write and recite a territorial acknowledgement that sort of obscures that fact, I think we do a disservice to that treaty and to those nations, unquote. And so Hayden King is sort of, it's a call to uh, do something more with this, that, that there are real, tangible changes that need to take place. And I guess the question that I wanted to pose to to people that are listening, is what we need to make those real institutional changes. How can we, uh, instead of treating or fetishizing the territorial or land acknowledgement, how do we make this real? Once again, thank you for joining us. In our next episode, we'll discuss the idea of Canada as myth, The value of territorial and land acknowledgments, and the open secret of the unmarked graves of indigenous children. We'll also talk about how we can work together to take action for a better future for everyone. See you soon. You've been listening to Chapter One, the podcast series of the Kitchener Public Library. Join
1: us next time for the unique and diverse voices of the Waterloo Region.